Please take your copy of the scriptures tonight and turn with me over to the book of Zechariah, the Old Testament book, Zechariah. We're going to be looking tonight at Zechariah chapter 12. This is a fascinating passage because it tells us about a revival that is going to occur in Israel at the end of the age. You'll hear many people talk about this and they wonder if there is really any prophetic future for Israel. And Scripture is pretty plain that you can see this in uh, Romans 9, 10, 11 to see what the Lord is doing there in Israel. And uh, this passage especially is fascinating tonight because it tells us about this revival that is going to come. But right in the middle of it, there is a description that I think we want to pay really close attention to because across the ages there have been a number of saints of God and preachers and churches who have taken hold of what is here and said, Lord, would you do this now? Would you be willing to do this? Not, uh, not bring the end of the age, not bring uh, necessarily the revival in Israel, although we pray specifically for that, but that the Lord would do the same thing in us now as a people of God. So I'll show you what I mean here in just a moment. Let's begin reading with Zechariah chapter 12. We'll start with verse 1, and we'll read all the way down through the first verse of Zechariah chapter 13. The burden of the word of the Lord of Israel, saith the Lord, which stretched forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege against both Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth shall be gathered together against it. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment, his rider with madness, and I will open my eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood, like a torch of fire in a sheaf. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited in her own place, even Jerusalem." The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. In that day, the Lord shall defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them." And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, verse 10 is our special focus for tonight. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. 
and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadrimon in the valley of Megiddo. We believe that is a reference to uh, when King Josiah died in battle. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart and their wives apart, and all the families that remain, every family apart and their wives apart. Chapter 13 and verse 1. In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Shall we pause together to pray? Lord, we want to acknowledge you tonight and praise you and exalt you that you are our wonderful and majestic Lord, the King of kings, Lord of lords. You are the Lord of hosts. You are the one who formed the heavens and you formed the earth and you formed the spirit within every man. So, Lord, tonight we are trusting you and resting in your words. Jesus said, the words that I give unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Father, we're asking tonight then that you would do a majestic work in us to recognize and open our eyes to what you have done in the past, not only in Israel and in other countries, but also in this great nation, in the United States of America. Lord, you have done it before, and many of us believe that you can and will do it again as your people cry out to you. Father, we're asking in this depraved and corrupt culture in which we live, would you not do a mighty work in us as we cry out to you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of special focus tonight is verse 10, where you see these words, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. Many of you have been reading about what happened with this submarine that was down investigating the shipwreck of the Titanic and the sudden and remarkable implosion of that submarine. It's been interesting to listen to the notes of engineers and others as they have talked about this. And one of the things that is coming out is this. One of the engineers who actually built his own sub to go all the way down into the Challenger Deep, that's the Marianas Trench, seven miles down, he was able to build his own submarine to go down there. That man began immediately to question when they talked about building submarines out of carbon fiber, out of composite materials, carbon fiber and steel. And he said, don't, don't you see that with the filaments inside that composite, don't you see that when you have those kind of pressures coming to bear against those, those carbon fibers, don't you see how that can begin to rearrange the molecules inside that composite? And they pointed out that the weight of that would be comparable be the weight of the empire the empire state building bearing down on that submarine and they pointed out things like you know every time that submarine has gone down uh, the pressures would have rearranged some of those fibers and they were they had serious concerns about using carbon fiber as a way that seems very strong, very powerful, using that even with titanium, as they did. 
And sure enough, they are saying now that's probably exactly what happened. In fact, I don't know exactly how they know this yet, but the notes that are coming out say that the submarine had already released its ballast, which means that they were alerted to the fact that there was a problem. The engineers that uh, my wife and I were listening to a discussion on this, they said what that likely meant was that they heard the crackling inside the submarine and realized they were in serious trouble and needed to immediately surface. But even in releasing the ballast, what happened was the pressures of the deep imploded or crushed that submarine. I have to admit, when I heard about this story and I thought about this, I immediately thought of passages such as Romans chapter 12, where we are told, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. If you think about the pressures of the deep bearing in upon that submarine, the conforming pressure and ultimately destruction of what happened, you realize that even in our own culture, when you and I talk about this, that there is this immense pressure that is on us that is, that is conforming and pressuring us. And it raises the question for all of us, are our Christian lives, is our faith built out of the kind of materials, say, that would take someone down into the Challenger Deep who went all the way down, seven miles down, into the Marianas Trench? Or is it something that certainly seems like we're in pretty good shape until the immense pressures come and only to realize to our horror that we have not built correctly. We have not taken God at his word and actually used the scriptures to put together the essence or the essential part of our Christian lives with the very great danger that we will be, we will have pressures that come upon us that would actually begin to destroy us if we're not very careful. It certainly helps all of us to understand we ought to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. When you look at this passage before us tonight, you can see in the manuscript, verses 2 through 9 explain when these events will occur. And by the very careful description that you see in Zechariah chapter 12, you begin to realize pretty quickly, yeah, that's talking about the end of the age. That's talking about when all the nations come against Israel and what it will be like for them at that time. And it says that they will besiege Jerusalem, and as they exercise their might, you might ask the question, well, hey, how could Judah and Jerusalem, how could they withstand these these armies that are coming upon them, all the pressures that are coming upon them? And according to this passage, here's what the Lord says they're going to find. These invading nations are going to find that when they try to take Judah, they try to take Jerusalem that it will be like an intoxicating cup to them. They will be reeling like drunkards or reeling like those who try to pick up an impossibly heavy stone and try to carry it. Really interesting in here is when he talks about what the feeble will be like. Did you notice that as we, we went by there? They talked about how the feeble will be like the house of David. Uh, you, have to, you have to marvel at this when the leaders talk about what it's going to be like for them. Because they said, the Lord will save the tents of Judah and the way he's going to bring this all about. Look at verse 8 of Zechariah 12. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them in that day shall be as David. Okay, just let that, let that kind of sink in for a minute. The ones who are feeble, 
will be like David. Well, what does that say about the ones who are strong? I mean, probably the closest you and I could come to this would be like, let's say that somebody is feeble and they're starting to use a walker. We may have some folks here tonight that, that have a walker. And, and just try to picture those people, you know, transformed into, you know, Walker, Texas Ranger or something, being able to use their walker to do, you know, amazing things and battle people. That's probably the closest you and I could even come to something like that. But nevertheless, that is what this passage is talking about, that even the feeble will be like David in their might. And so it's truly remarkable when you see how the Lord is going to bring this out. Of special attention for us tonight in this message is this revival that it's talking about. And it is speaking of it as a culminating revival, the revival at the end of the age, just before the Lord's return, the revival that is going to occur in Israel. When you think about what he's saying here in this passage, in verse 10, that the Lord will pour out his spirit, that's very important to note tonight. He says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. We're going to come back to that in just a moment about what does that really mean when he says the spirit of grace and supplications. But before we go there, let's ask the question, wait a minute, is this just an unusual occurrence at the end of the age that really has no relevance to us today? That we would say, so that's what's going to happen at the end of the age. Does it have anything to do with us? And here's the really intriguing prospect, that a number of people, a number of Christian people in the New Testament age have pointed back to passages like that to say, you know, we believe that we can use God's promises to cry out to him to do the same kind of thing in our own day as he has done in other days. This is the common experience of believers across the age. Just because there were tremendous revivals in the United States of America in the first great awakening, and many would point to the second great awakening and the prayer meeting revival that began in 1857 in New York, Just because the Lord has done that in other ages, does that mean that you and I get to coast on those revivals? And the answer, of course, is no, that doesn't work very well. And you've sensed this recently. You've sensed in our society that the fear of God has begun to fade. And you've seen the depravity of our society, and you have begun to ask, wait a minute, what, what is going on here? Could, could anyone among us dream that it would go down as quickly, that morality would decline as quickly as it is right now? And the answer is that every new generation has to go back to the scriptures and to cry out to the Lord in the very same way that others did, other generations did. Remember when uh, it talks about Isaac came along and Isaac was trying to take over some of the very same areas that Abraham had occupied. And it says that uh, Isaac went back and dug again the wells which Abraham, his father, had dug, which the Philistines had filled in. There's always going to be Philistines in every generation who are going to try to fill in and say, there's no life-giving water here. And every new generation has to go back and dig its wells again and find out, indeed, there is life-giving water there. You can see that there are passages in your manuscript where the Lord pours out his spirit. Consider, for instance, Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 23. Here's what the Lord said. 
turn you at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Again, that's it. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 23. Personal repentance in that case leads to an outpouring of God's spirit with special illumination from God's word. Now, we'll get to this right at the end of the message, but it's very plain, is it not, that when a person comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, that the Lord baptizes that person in the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, If any man has not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. And it's, so it's very plain that the Lord does that. But aren't there times when you and I as believers could cry out to the Lord and ask him to do a special outpouring of his Spirit in a special way, in a special moving I pointed this out to you recently when we talked about at our Lord's table. I talked to you about the way the terminology here has been bandied back and forth by men that I have great respect for, like Martin Lloyd-Jones, who talked about this. And when Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about this, he talks about this outpouring as a baptism of the Holy Spirit again, that the Lord's going to pour out his Spirit. Others would say, wow, can we not use the word baptism? That seems to be a more technical term. Can we talk about the outpouring of the Spirit, or can we talk about the anointing of the Spirit? But across the ages, men like R.A. Torrey, D.L. Moody, and others have said, what we are talking about here is begging the Lord to do a special work by His Spirit. Here's the question for all of us. Would the Lord be pleased to do that in our own congregation and in our own country? Consider, for instance, the words in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. The Lord says, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. It does appear that as people have been thirsty for it, you know, in the Beatitudes, the Lord talks about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. If people have hungered for this and thirsted for this, that the Lord has done a really remarkable work. Now, the passage that really catches your attention here is when Peter is describing what happened at Pentecost. And when Peter is describing what happened at Pentecost, he says, you know what's happening here is the Lord is pouring out his spirit according to what he prophesied back in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. We won't turn to that passage, but Peter says, this is that which the prophet spoke of. Well, the difficulty is that when you read Joel chapter 2 and you start really working through it, and I included it in your manuscript so you look at this for yourself, that Joel chapter 2 is obviously talking about events that occur at the very end of the age. In other words, there's still future for us today. And yet Peter is saying, you know, this is connected to the Lord pouring out his spirit. When he poured out his spirit in Pentecost... And so Peter is looking at it as, as all of one piece. You and I could refer to it as the church age. From Pentecost to the very end, he is looking at it as of one piece. And he's basically saying, this is the inauguration or this is the initiation. And what God is doing is he is pouring out his spirit. And so Peter is specifically referring to that and, so, and showing there is a connection with all these things. The last time that we came together around our Lord's table, we focused specifically on Luke chapter 11, and we looked at verse 13, where it says, 
if you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? Now, here's the point for tonight's message. There have been people of God across the ages, saints of God across the ages, and they have said, we believe there is a promise built into this. We believe that if we join together, that what we can do is we can cry out to the Lord and the Lord would do a special work. I would point out to you that even before we look at these other historical illustrations, that's occurred inside our own congregation. That has occurred at times when the Lord has done a very special work. Years ago, we did a program called Calling on Heaven for Hancock County. You remember that we prayed through every listing in the phone book. Does anybody remember what a phone book was anymore? We prayed through every listing in the phone book, and then we set out to call all those people. We had people who came here into our congregation They heard a message and they got under so much conviction that they began to weep and immediately went out into the foyer, went over to the track rack and just grabbed a handful of tracks and went out the door. And according to their testimony, one of those tracks was a little kitty tract. It was designed for little children. And the man said, as I read through that, I clearly understood the gospel and that's when I trusted Jesus Christ. That's the kind of work that God could do by his spirit if his people ask him to do so. There was another time when we had 10-day meetings here in our congregation, and I remember many, many Saturday afternoons, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, I remember men all over this auditorium on their faces crying out to the Lord to do a great work in preparation for those meetings. And folks, we are still seeing the benefit in our congregation of what the Lord did in that time. My opinion, this is my expression of it, I believe the Lord poured out his spirit. And so when you're thinking about this tonight, let's ask if we can be entirely biblical. There was a group in 1801 Presbyterians in North Carolina, and here's the way they expressed it. God has evidently begun to pour out his spirit in an eminent degree. You see what they're doing? They're drawing on passages like Zechariah chapter 12 and like what Peter said at Pentecost, what it says in Isaiah 44. They're using the same biblical language. I told you about James McGrady. I think it was in the last message. James McGrady was a Presbyterian evangelist who ministered in Tennessee and Kentucky. His great claim to fame, this is in the history books now, his great claim to fame was he was so ugly that he drew attention to himself. But they said when the man preached, the beauty of the Lord was upon him. He was one of the men that led his congregations to pray and specifically asked for an outpouring of the Spirit. Well, before we go any further with those historical illustrations, let's go back to the text and go back to Zechariah chapter 12 and ask a few questions here about this. When he says in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, I will pour out upon the house of David, who's the I? Who is it that is speaking here? And you can see it there in your notes. This is God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. See it there in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, says the Lord, which stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. Not only did he form the earth, you can see secondly, that he formed the spirit in every man. So this is the creator that we're talking about, the one who made us. He created the heavens. He created the earth. He formed the spirit in every man. Listen, 
if you're seeking revival, wouldn't you want to turn to the one who designed us, the one who created us, the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who formed the spirit within us? Certainly that's the one you would want to. But then notice what else it says about him down in verse 10. He says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. Look what it says next. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. To whom is that a reference? It's a reference to Jesus Christ. It's a reference to the crucified one. And that is exactly what you would expect the Holy Spirit of God to do, to direct the attention to Jesus Christ, just as we see in throughout the scriptures. That's what the Holy Spirit is going to do, most especially in the New Testament we see that. That's exactly what you would expect to happen in a revival. And again, this revival that is going to culminate at the end of the age, it has these remarkable characteristics that we can look at. And the beauty of it is that across these ages, we have partaken of those blessings. Yes, that specific promise is about the revival that will come. But the beauty of it is, is that God's people have gotten on their faces and saying, Lord, May we partake of those blessings now. Would you do a majestic work in us now? And that's basically uh, what we're seeing here. What is the nature of this spirit, this nature of this pouring out that he's talking about here? Well, notice there again in verse 10, he says, the spirit of grace and supplication. I spent quite a few, quite a little bit of time trying to study out what does he mean by that when he talks about grace and supplication. And what he's talking about is that God blesses his people with his favor. Wouldn't, wouldn't you want God's face to shine upon you? You say, oh, that's what I'd really love. Wouldn't you love for the Lord's face to shine upon our congregation and our country, our state for that matter? And you say, that's, that's exactly what we would like for the Lord to do is give us his favor. Well, that's what he's talking about here. But he also makes this comment, it's not merely his favor. He also says he will pour out the spirit of grace and supplication. Don't miss that because here's what he's driving at there. It's not only favor, it's not only seeking after the Lord, it's not only his kindness, but it's the kindness of God that leads his people to humbly cry out to God for help. He stirs his people to pray, right? Stop just for a moment and ask this question. If the Lord were to begin to burden you to pray for an outpouring of his spirit, what will you do with that urgency, that, that urge, that, that idea, that burden? What will you do with that when that time comes? Across the ages, here is what God has done. He has stirred up his people to pray. When that burden, that urgency begins to come on you, why not say, Lord, I'm going going to pray. I'm going to set my heart to earnestly pray about that matter because that's exactly the way that God has worked through his people across the ages. He has burdened them to pray, and then he's answered their prayers. And that's what we see in these great awakenings that we're seeing here. A.T. Pearson, who was a wonderful biblical scholar and uh, taught right about the time of the the Civil War. Here's what A.T. Pearson wrote. 
There has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin with united prayer. There has never been one, he said, that did not begin with united prayer. I'm going to raise the same question here that I raised once before. When you see those storms in the Mediterranean pummeling that ship in the scripture, were those storms pounding that boat because of the paganism of the sailors or because of the disobedience of the prophet Jonah? Dear friends, it was because of the disobedience of the prophet. What if, I'm raising the question here tonight, what if what we are seeing in our society is a direct result of the disobedience of Christians? You say, Pastor, that would be, that would be horrendous. Well, there's hope built up in this. And here's the hope. Christians know how to draw near to God, don't they? Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, those of us who have come to the Lord, we know how to draw near to the Lord. Well, what if? What if in our drawing near to the Lord, having salt in ourselves, being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, What if that's exactly what the Lord wants to do in our own generation as he has done in past generations? I'll just pause and ask, are you in? If that's what the Lord wants to do, would you be willing to covenant together to pray that the Lord would pour out his spirit and join others in praying for that revival? I included in here a few notes about the way this has happened in the past. Men such as John Erskine, who was very well-known Presbyterian, Jonathan Edwards, that name I hope you know very, very well, they explicitly called upon God's people to pray. And as they began to pray, there was that same mourning over sin or grieving over sin that you see characterized here in Zechariah chapter 12. In other words, As the Holy Spirit began to be poured out, he convicted men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We prayed about this in our prayer meeting this past Wednesday night. We used that very passage from John chapter 16 because that's the nature of what the Lord does in pouring out his spirit. He causes his people to grieve over sin. He causes his own people to repent. You say, Pastor, do Christians really need to repent? All you have to do is go back and read through the churches in the seven churches in the Revelation. And you see how often the Lord called upon his own congregations to repent. Friends, what if that's exactly what the Lord wants to do in our own generation? I am picking up from a number of other pastors that churches are beginning to long for genuine revival. And do you see why that is? Because they're watching how dark the society is getting all around them. You say, have you ever heard somebody say, well, I, I pray best under pressure. What does that really mean? It means I only pray under pressure. If you say that, it's like saying, Lord, please give me immense pressure so I can pray. And Lord, keep the pressure on me until I pray. What will it take for you and me to humble ourselves before the Lord and cry out to him to ask him to do that majestic work? I included in here a few notes here. James McGrady that I've been reading about a lot. 
they talked about the fact that even in 1799, this would be in Tennessee and Kentucky, it was just a wild pioneer uh, area, very corrupt. I mean, there's just all sorts of terrible sins. There weren't all that many churches. But they, in the churches that were there, they said, before the winter restrained the large crowds, you can see that with the heavy snows, just almost impossible for some of them to get to church. There was one last revival in nearby Tennessee. Here, McGrady, James McGrady, was joined by Rankin and by one of the other North Carolina converts, the Reverend William McGee, who was a very fervent Presbyterian. During the ensuing winter, nothing extraordinary occurred. Pause just for a moment to ask, right now would you say nothing extraordinary is really occurring? That's what they're pointing to. They said, it seemed like nothing extraordinary occurred, but a few of the recently converted seemed to relapse. Uh, Fewer, very few of those seemed to relax into complacency. But he said it was the proverbial calm before the storm for the coming of 1800 was to bring the most amazing displays of revival zeal that they had yet seen. I'll leave for you to read what uh, McGrady said there, but he pointed out, he said, this is exactly what's happened. He said, as the Lord has indeed showed himself to be a prayer-hearing God. He has given people a praying spirit and a lively faith. So raise the question tonight. If the Lord were going to do that kind of work in our own age and right now, how would he begin to do it? Friends, here's how he would do it. He would do it by giving his people a humble spirit to pray and to persevere in prayer. What if that's what he's doing right now? What if that's what he's doing right now? Would you be willing to pray and to cry out to the Lord to ask him to do that? I think I mentioned the last time, James McGrady was pastoring three congregations that were remote from each other in Kentucky that he had planted. He said, could we agree to do this? Could we agree that on the third Saturday of every month, we would fast and pray and beg the Lord to pour out his spirit? They did that for a whole year. That's exactly what the Lord did. Would it be worth it to you? And by the way, you know, fasting is not for everybody. You know, I'm not a doctor, and so you be, be careful. Talk to your doctor about the medical aspects of this. But would it be worth it to you to invest like an entire Saturday in prayer to cry out to the Lord to do that reviving work? Would it be worth it to give 12 Saturdays across 12 months to cry out to the Lord as a group, as a congregation, and beg the Lord to do it if he did the kind of amazing, reviving work that he did in Tennessee and Kentucky. I think I told you before that they commented after, or it was right in the heat of that second great awakening, they commented that, that Kentucky was the most moral place on the face of the earth. Why? It was a work of God's spirit. It was God's spirit that was at work in them. Martin Lloyd-Jones and others have really talked about the effect of the revival in Wales, the Welsh revival. And I find it very interesting that a number of biblical scholars have said, be careful here. I mean, that was, that was one of Jonathan Edwards' greatest concerns, is that what was going on would not result in a cheap imitation or counterfeit or other people watching other people get right with the Lord, and they would think, okay, if I just do those same kind of things, the same thing will happen to me. He was really concerned that nobody would make those kind of mistakes. And so here's what men like F.B. Meyer said about the Welch revival. The supreme test of a revival, F.B. Meyer said, is the ethical result. 
As to this, the testimony of all on the spot is absolutely unanimous. Not merely are all the grosser vices reduced to the vanishing point, subtle sins such as unforgiving rancor, non-payment of debts, dishonest work were abated. In fact, F.B. Meyer quoted here from Evan Roberts, who I think you know was the leader in the Welsh Revival. And here's what he said. He said, in nothing is Mr. Evan Roberts clearer and more emphatic than his insistence upon the forgiveness of injuries, unless it be as the duty of repayment of debts, And here's what he said that Evan Roberts said. It is no use asking God to forgive you, he tells his hearers, unless you have forgiven all your enemies, every one. You will only be forgiven in the same measure as you forgive. Again, he says, how can there be when there are family feuds and personal animosities, churches torn by little dissensions, members cold toward each other, if you're not prepared to forgive others, it is of no use to go to your knees tonight and ask God to forgive your transgressions. And then Evan Roberts, just so you see that he's not lording it over, he says, I don't say that you do this. He said, please yourselves, of course. But the one thing is absolutely certain, God will not listen to you. As these people across the ages have said, look, I, I just want to get completely and totally right with God. I, I want to be in a place where I can cry out to the Lord and he will do this great work. I do want to ask him to pour out his spirit. As I've mentioned to you, we have planned eight-day meetings, November 5 through 12. Les Olala is going to be with us and Marty Heron. And as we look toward those meetings, wouldn't now be a great time to pray for our entire congregation and ask the Lord to do that work? Would God be pleased for us to ask him to pour out his spirit in our own days, in our congregation, and on in our country? Again, there may be those who say, wait, I I think when the Lord talks about the baptism of the Spirit, I think he's talking about salvation. Okay, I think the vast majority of people would agree with that. I certainly would agree with that, and that's the way I would present that. But I find it interesting that even those who say that refer to the fact that baptism with the Spirit at salvation does not preclude multiple subsequent experiences of the Spirit's activity. The New Testament endorses and encourages multiple subsequent experiences of the Spirit's power and presence. I'll tell you who I really respect on this is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was emphatic that this was one of the most urgent needs of the people in his generation, uh, not all that long ago, and in our own generation as well. So the specific appeal tonight is could you and I would you and I be willing to ask the Lord to do that same kind of work? Wouldn't it be wonderful to point back to for your own children and your own grandchildren and the many people in our area to see how the Lord has done that majestic work by pouring out his spirit? Okay, how does that begin? It begins by God stirring his people to pray. Would you be willing to pray about that? May we bow our heads together, please. In just a moment, we will be joining our voices in singing. But I'd like to ask you that question. Would you be willing to say, Lord, I want you to do that majestic work in me. I want you to do that in our congregation. I want you to do that in our country. I'm not asking for a show of hands tonight. I am asking 
would you be willing to cry out to the Lord that way? We, we will announce, and I'm certain, that we will have special times of prayer. But folks, we gather on Wednesday evenings. This next Wednesday evening, we'll be praying through the latter part of John chapter 16. It makes special reference to the Holy Spirit and to his comfort. But could you and I, would you and I be willing to set aside the things that hinder us and the things that quench the Spirit of God and grieve the Spirit of God and cry out to him for a special outpouring of his Spirit? I just want you to picture yourself one of these days in heaven looking back on what might have happened as you and I cry out to the Lord and think, wouldn't that be glorious to see the Lord do that same outpouring of his spirit in our day, just as he has done in other days. Shall we pray together? Father, how we praise you and thank you tonight for the fact that your Holy Spirit convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And Lord, as we think about what Evan Roberts said about willingness to forgive a willingness to get in a right position so that we can cry out to you and ask for an outpouring of your spirit that, Lord, you would do that majestic work in us. We're crying out to you tonight, Lord, specifically, that you would do that amazing work. Would you help us as a congregation? The country around us, Lord, we see is in such dire straits and desperately needs for people to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Would you help us, Lord, to fulfill our biblical roles and to honor you? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.